This is a content warning. That's right. On an episode all about swearing, I'm about to warn you that there will indeed be some expletives. Expect every class and colour and composition of swear word you can imagine, from the old Germanic gut punchers through to the classical multisyllabic word assassins, through to the infinity of internet imprecations and beyond. So as ever, teachers, guardians, parents and caregivers, you should listen to this entire episode first, and then make your own judgement call about whether this content is suitable for younger or more sensitive audiences. Case S01, E12, Cursing and Swearing. It's May of 2005. We're in England, close to the dreaming spires of Oxford University, that epicentre of stately, ancient knowledge. A record-breaking heatwave is clamping down on the south of England and at one point the temperatures reach as high as 31 degrees Celsius, that is a whopping 88 degrees Fahrenheit. For England, in May, that's enough to break a 50-year record. But right now, it's evening, it's a little cooler, and for some students they have just finished their finals. These are end-of-year university exams. Time to take a night out and celebrate. Perhaps anticipating a little post-stress rowdiness, the police are visible on the streets, some on foot, others on horseback. As the night darkens and the drinks flow, the festivities increase, and 21-year-old English literature student Sam Brown approaches a mounted police officer. For reasons with which we are likely to never be acquainted, he decides to address the officer with the immortal words, Excuse me, do you realise your horse is gay? Quite what Brown's purpose was, I couldn't even begin to guess, and I'm now going to pose a conundrum equally baffling. I'm forced to confess here that I can't confidently determine if Brown is commenting on the horse's sexual orientation, or if he is using gay as a pejorative remark. So for people outside of Britain, in case this didn't occur in your own linguistic backyard, for a while there, gay was a shorthand slur, it was an insult driven by homophobia. Thankfully, that brief, ugly moment seems to be mostly over, but at the time of this case, either interpretation of the word, as a sexual orientation or as a homophobia-laced insult, was entirely plausible. Very weakly, I tend toward thinking that this was a comment on the horse's quality time preferences, mainly because it's hard to imagine that even a drunk student could look at a fully equipped police horse and be unimpressed. Police horses in the UK are explicitly chosen for their imposing stature and presence. These are not small, they're not lightly built horses, they tower over the average person, and when fully kitted out, especially for night patrol or in crowd control armour, they are pretty damned impressive. So on that basis, I can only guess that Brown felt he had some divine equine insight that he needed to convey to the officer. Or he was just being a jerk and playing the comedian for his friends. Whatever the case, to be absolutely sure, it would almost certainly help if we knew what had happened in the moments prior to his rather extraordinary question, but we don't. What we do know is what followed. Brown was promptly arrested under Section 5 of the Public Order Act 1986 for making remarks deemed to be homophobic. In other words, the police seemed to infer that he was using the word gay as a slur, which is interesting, 
and also very messy. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Importantly, at the time of the arrest, Section 5 of this Act did not require evidence of harassment, alarm or distress. The horse didn't have to freak out. Rather, it was sufficient simply to note that the threatening, abusive, insulting words or behaviour occurred in a place where it was likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress. And this applied to behaviour that was spoken or written, drunk or sober, Oxford University student or not. Brown was charged with the offence and fined £80, which he refused to pay. It's unclear quite what happened in the intervening six months, but then, in January of 2006, the Crown Prosecution Service, or CPS, dropped the case against Brown. Their reasons for not pursuing the matter further were that they lacked sufficient evidence of alarm, distress or disorderly conduct. I can also imagine that issues of public perception will have played a part in this case, but that's just me speculating. A year later, and it's now 2006, we're walking down a street in Newcastle with 16-year-old Kyle Little and his girlfriend, also 16. It's worth noting that in the UK, 16 is a minor. He hasn't yet reached the age of majority. He's basically a child. Kyle Little is directing unpleasant language at nearby police officers who tell him to knock it off. Abruptly, Chocolate Labradors, Princess and Ruby, enter the scene. They bound across their back garden to their gate and they begin barking at Little. Little decides that he should growl and bark back and the police spring into action and arrest him. Meanwhile, the dog's owner, Sunita Vidhara, looks on with the perplexity that I can only imagine the rest of us would feel if this bizarre scene started unfolding at our own garden gate. As a direct consequence of barking at the dogs, Little is cuffed, stuck in a police van, taken to the station, held in a cell for over five hours, taken to magistrate's court, convicted under Section 5 of the Public Order Act 1986, fined £50 and charged £150 in costs. Little appeals and the Crown Court determines that his appeal is sound. In overturning his conviction, Judge Beatrice Bolton drenches the whole affair with a refreshing shower of cold words, thus. The law is not an ass. I'm sure an expert on Labradors could explain how distressed the dogs were, but I don't think Section 5 of the Public Order Act applies to dogs. Growling or barking at a dog does not amount to a Section 5 offence, even if a defendant has been told by the police to curb his language. He obviously did curb his language and spoke to the dogs rather than continuing to swear at the police. Back to the Public Order Act 1986. As you may be starting to realise, Section 5 clearly has the hallmarks of judicial infamy, and yet not all the stories it generates work out in quite the same way as these two. We'll come back to Section 5 later, though, after we've gotten better acquainted with some real swear words. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and further links to reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this episode. And if you get a moment... Leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. One of my earliest childhood memories, and you may want to skip forward about a minute or so if you're squeamish here, 
is of almost chopping off a thumb tip in the hinge side of a door. So at the age of about six or seven or so, I went to go see if my neighbour of about the same age wanted to play out. And as he opened the door, I leaned on the frame to ask him. He was in a bad mood for some reason, I have no idea why. He shouted no, and he slammed the door shut in my face. Unfortunately, my thumb was in the hinge bit as the door shut. I don't actually remember much about the next few minutes. I recall sweaty, pasty-faced parents. I think I screamed a lot. And I remember that there was a blood-drenched tea towel wrapped around my fist so that it looked like this murderous turkey drumstick. And then my next clearest memory is sitting in hospital some hours later. And by this point, my thumb tip has been sewn back on and I am high as a kite on a very powerful cocktail of drugs. A nurse, meanwhile, is struggling to show my mother how to dress a squirming child's very tiny thumb. I am not helping matters at all, I'm tired and high. And into the midst of this tense, fraught scene, I randomly announce, I have a bloody thumb. My last vivid memory of the whole incident is of all the grown-ups in the room, there's about 10 of them, I don't know why, all bursting into laughter as if I had taken the Apollo Theatre by storm. So, as you can imagine, age six or seven, also off my face on drugs, I stored this information away about this magical word, and some weeks later, grinning broadly, I told everyone at the dinner table, I have a bloody broccoli. This did not go down the same way. In fact, not only did nobody laugh, I actually spent the rest of the night in complete disgrace. So, interestingly, swearing and children have been a confluence of topics that have worried at the neuroses and anxieties of society since about as long as swearing has existed. What are parents, educators and other adults to do about the problem of child swearing? This is the question that opens the 2013 article A Child's Garden of Curses, written for the American Journal of Psychology by Kristen and Timothy Jay. They go on thus... It is clear that at some point, children learn to boo language. However, the nature of this acquisition is unspecified by language researchers. In the absence of a good body of data about child swearing, obscenity law assumes that children are naive to taboo words and become corrupted or depraved when exposed to them. Therefore, children should be protected from taboo words. Over the centuries, these fears of corruption and moral turpitude have resulted in whole chapters in parenting books, grave seminars by esteemed professors, religious guidance and counselling at service on Sunday, extensive school rules, innumerable terms of service across online platforms and websites, and reams of strictly enforced legislation, all based on the sense that swearing is de facto bad, but that swearing in front of children is horrific. So let's take one example. Ofcom is the UK's communications regulator and it puts protecting children from harmful material at the centre of their broadcasting code. This code restricts the kind of material that can be aired on TV or radio before 9pm in the UK. So 9pm in the UK is known as watershed. Beforehand, no bad words or content. Afterward, it can be pretty much a free-for-all. In 2016, Ofcom defined harmful and unsuitable material as everything from sexual content to violence, graphic or distressing imagery, and swearing. For example, the most offensive language must not be broadcast before the watershed on TV or on radio when children are particularly likely to be listening. 
Frequent use of offensive language must be avoided before the watershed and must always be justified by its context. So, what if you accidentally drop an oh fuck into your live news broadcast? Breaking these regulations can result in legal sanctions. So Playboy TV and Just For Us were fined £50,000 and £60,000 respectively for broadcasting advertisements for adult chats before the 9pm watershed. But there's a fun question buried underneath all of this. As you probably know listening to this podcast, language changes over time and swearing is no different. So how do you draw up a list of bad words to start with And then, how do you rank them and decide which ones can air before the watershed and which ones can only happen afterwards? To address this question, Ofcom quite literally conducts periodic large-scale surveys with TV and radio users to see what they think about harmful content and to check whether their restrictions continue to be suitable. Changes in attitudes can mean that previous restrictions now seem unduly prudish or far too lenient in some cases. In 2016, Ofcom published the results of a large-scale research project about offensive language, and in this, the respondents to the study divided a range of swear words into two categories. On the one hand, discriminatory words, and on the other hand, non-discriminatory words. The non-discriminatory category was then divided up into a further four subgroups. Milder words that were generally of little concern, medium words that might just squeak by before watershed but only with scrutiny, strong words that were almost certainly never acceptable pre-watershed, and the strongest words which were highly unacceptable pre-watershed. There's some interesting things to note about these various categories. In the mildest group, you find words like arse and bloody. So you could probably get away with saying things like, bloody hell, you're such an arse, before watershed, without too much comment, assuming that the context justifies it. In the medium column, where you start seriously pushing your look pre-watershed, You have words like shit, asshole, and bitch. But then you also have tits. And that is weird because in the next column, the strong words, which you get into really hot water for if you use these pre-watershed, you have the word knob. Now, it's weird to me that knob is considered more offensive than tits because I remember using knob as an insult through most of my high school years and the teachers never bothered. We would shout it at each other across the classroom. Had I said tits, that would have been a problem. I would have gotten in a lot of trouble for that. But knob was fine. That said, I went to a very rough working-class comprehensive school in a very poor neighbourhood, so you probably shouldn't read too much into that. Aside from this rather quaint appearance of the word knob, most of the strong words, that is the third category of words, relate exclusively to genitalia. Men's obviously appear in there, but mainly it's women's. Every offensive synonym you can think of for the vagina is in there, except for one. And that is in the strongest group of all, along with just two other candidates. That's right, topping the off-comp horse race of swear words, you have the classic trinity of fuck, motherfucker, and cunt. If you're interested and want to see the full table, take a peek at the blog post. It is a great table, and I encourage you to print it and stick it on your wall and explain to your boss that you put it there so you know which words you're allowed to say at work with impunity because Ofcom says so. Maybe don't do this if you work in a school. Or a monastery. Moving on, what about the discriminatory words? Well, here is where I am going to draw a line. I realise you might not believe it this far through the episode, but there are actually some words I won't say, and this is the group that I will largely stay away from. 
So the N-word is a classic one. That was in the discriminatory words group. But you yourself probably know of other highly offensive racist terms that have a really vile history of oppression and brutality behind them. And these words were rated by the Ofcom participants as unacceptably offensive, regardless of time or context of use. This is quite heartening because as recently as 2002, Robertson's Jam had a little collectible character, latterly named Golly, whose history does not stand up well to scrutiny. It's only just been discontinued in the past 17 years. Thankfully, explicitly homophobic and transphobic words were also considered deeply unacceptable. But when it came to words related to mental health and disability, there was a more complicated reaction. Some terms, such as spastic, mong and retard, were evaluated very negatively regardless of context. That's quite heartening again. But others, such as loony or mental, were seen as rather more mild and therefore more acceptable. This raises a question about whether or not we have a lot more work to do about words relating to mental health. Finally, the overall view was that whilst participants were generally supportive of putting some of the restrictions described above on offensive language, particularly to protect children, they did also prefer TV and radio to be realistic. So there's that weird dichotomy again. We somehow don't think it's harmful for adults to swear, and we're so unconcerned by it that we even think of it as normal, that TV and radio without it would seem unnatural, it wouldn't be lifelike. But we're strangely upset at the idea of children swearing, or hearing swearing, for fear of something, this moral decay, this damage that will happen to them in some way. And I set myself here as a perfect example of the contradictory nature of this position, As a linguist, I know full well that swearing is just another flavour of words. It's a different colour on the linguistic spectrum that one only paints into conversation in certain times and places. I recognise that by treating certain words as somehow actively harmful is almost like engaging in magical thinking. I should stress here that I'm not talking about words that demean others. I'm talking about the kind of thing you might say if you drop something on your foot. We'll get into the finer definitions between different swear words in a minute. But why should it matter so much if I utter an exclamation of pain that uses one set of sounds rather than another? What harm could this do to any nearby child? I mean, let's say they instantly learn this new, exciting sound. People who've watched Meet the Fockers will remember this when the little boy learns to say asshole and says it everywhere. So let's say they instantly learn this new, exciting sound and start using it anywhere and everywhere. What harm does it do to anyone else? You know, Aunt Gladys might clutch her pearls, and those people down the post office might think you're the worst parent alive. But what takes them from your child has made a sound to this conclusion? What's the bad thing that's happening? If you really put this concept under the microscope, it doesn't actually make much sense. Why do we choose to be mortally affronted by a person swearing, a little person particularly, but really anyone? Especially if we recognise, as we often quickly can, that a child who uses a swear word like this often really doesn't know the word thoroughly yet. And yet, despite being in full possession of this paradox, I have broken my toe in front of three small pairs of ears, and instead of letting out an entire rainbow of extremely colourful words, I hobbled out of the room and groaned quietly to myself until I could function again. So, as a linguist, I know better, and yet I still do this. There is interesting research that looks into how we ever end up learning to swear at all, given our general social squeamishness about letting the younger part of the population into this magical world of bad words. And some of it quite amusingly shows that children rate words like fart and poop 
as being really bad swear words, whilst their ability to even recognise the more serious words is essentially underdeveloped because they just haven't had the exposure. They don't even know what these words mean, it's just like trigonometry to them. Whereas fart and poop, they hear that all the time and it's funny and it's bad. So to them, that's at the top of their really naughty word list. So now you know that next time your child calls you a poo-poo head or a smelly fart face, they're actually wheeling out the really big guns and hitting you with all the linguistic nukes they have at their command. Anyway, to go all the way back to the bloody broccoli incident from a few hours ago, this was the point where I decided that swearing, and grown-ups, made absolutely no sense both independently of each other and together as a whole. Why, I wanted to know, are some words considered bad? Because they're all just sounds or letters or gestures after all. And as I got older, I realised that in speech, we produce these exact noises all the time. Some people, when speaking quickly, might want to examine exactly how they pronounce words like couldn't. When I get fast, mid-speech, that is a very different word. And then there are words like that classic dog breed, the Shih Tzu. And no episode like this would be complete without a reference to The Simpsons where Bart is obsessed with talking about a nine-inch pianist. But that's slightly off-piste. See? Nearly swears, and actual swears that aren't really swears, are everywhere. I mean, in writing, there's something known as the scunthought problem. If you don't understand, write the word out, study it carefully, and you'll see what I mean. In gestures, some that are considered friendly or supportive or positive in one culture are deemed highly obscene in another. And there is a current battle right now to take the OK hand gesture where you make a circle with your thumb and your forefinger and you fan out your other three fingers as sort of an OK hand gesture, and people are trying to make it into an offensive white power sign. So we know that there's nothing inherent in the combination of sounds or letters or gestures by themselves that is automatically offensive. Yet, despite this, we still prosecute, persecute and even execute people for using certain words. Now, if you said words really can cause harm or offence, I would absolutely agree, they certainly can. But I'd also say that people can and do cause all kinds of lifelong appalling psychological harm without ever once using swear words. They do instead use polite, neatly quaffed, buttoned and brushed up language so it isn't the swear words by themselves that cause the damage. So in short, we treat this ill-defined class of words like they're somehow special or different, but in reality, swear words don't have extraordinary supernatural powers. Or do they? Day to day, most people rarely think about swearing and bad language. Typically, if we do think of it, it's because we're trying not to use it in front of children or run some sort of New Year's resolution to cut down for the betterment of our mind and being, or we have some other generally unexamined efforts towards being a better person. And already you can see that swearing, bad language, dirty language, ungodly language has an intriguing morass of connections with issues like hygiene, morality, and as we'll go on to see, class, and more besides. When you put swear words under the microscope, it turns out that there are, very roughly, about five categories of them. Some researchers go a little crazy and have 15. Others only have two or three, but for a podcast, five is a nice number, so we're going to go with that. The category that many use as a sort of catch-all, and indeed the one I've mainly used so far through this episode, is the term swearing. But in academic research, it tends to be used in a more limited sense to refer to aggressive or frustrated words. 
In reality, that's a really terrible definition because over the course of years, I have trained myself to say things like shut the front door and fluffing heck when around little ears. There's still expressions of pain if I've just banged my elbow or frustration if I can't get a jar open, but are they swearing? They can be aggressive words and they can be frustrated words, but mm, doesn't really qualify. I think we'd say probably not. But you should know that this is how swearing can be defined. The second term is profanity, and the clue is in the name. If you think about profane, this is often used as an antonym, an opposite of sacredness and godliness. Meanwhile, synonyms, that is, other words that are similar to profane, include words like secular, worldly, earthly, impious, irreverent. Profane words, then, run from exclamations like Jesus H. Christ through to God damn it. Back in the day, when we were a little more afraid of being smited, people would say things like gadzooks and zounds, which were deliberate manglings of phrases like God's looks and God's wounds. The idea was that openly using the Lord's name in this way was too close to sacrilege, but by disguising it a little, we could have our profanities and utter them too. I mean, it's a charming notion, but it's a bit perplexing. Because, you know, an almighty omniscient being with the power to identify anyone, anywhere, using his name profanely, would also have the capacity to see through a little bit of linguistic garbling. He could just read our minds and hear us literally discussing why we were using these terms amongst ourselves. But anyway, the third category is interwoven with the one before, but it's like profanity plus. This one is blasphemy. The crucial difference between the two is that profanity just uses a religious name or iconicity in an almost incidental way to strengthen the utterance, so Christ, this is a terrible cheesecake. By contrast, blasphemy attacks that religious figure or belief, so hang on to your hats because this is the one that people can get very sensitive about. Examples would include burning a sacred text, that would be one thing, or if I said, fuck you, fuck your dog, and fuck your god too. If you had a god, that would be a pretty clear-cut blasphemy. I would be more offended about the dog bit, but still. In plenty of countries, blasphemy is very illegal. Not just illegal. Really super badly illegal. Some places it will just get you locked up for a long time. Other places it will have you tortured and executed in the most barbaric ways imaginable. And across these different countries, the applications of these laws can be heavily skewed toward protecting dominant religions and persecuting minorities. There are some intriguing overlaps between these laws and those dealing with anarchy and treason. So the Patriot Act from the United States is just one that springs to mind, but this is a huge topic for a whole different podcast. So let's move on. The fourth category is obscenity, also sometimes known as taboo or indecent language. And this has several subcategories. As words like obscene, taboo and indecent suggest, this is the stuff that tends to be thought of as dirty or dangerous. The sorts of things one doesn't bring up at the dinner table because it will put people off their food, or embarrass them, or both. Classic examples are bodily functions, so words like shit. Then there are the carnal acts ranging from the slapstick, like shag, to that little black dress of swear words, fuck. I come back to that one because it is so good. Some relate to specific kinds of, shall we say, quality time, like bugger, wanker, cocksucker, and so on. Others relate to incest, motherfucker, to parentage, bastard, 
Then, of course, there is the veritable carnival of words relating to body parts. Bell end, tit, we've already had that one, arse, cunt, need I go on? The majority of informal, intimate body part names also double as insults that range from amusing to so serious that they are consistently ranked as some of the most offensive words in the English language. Some people also include within the obscenity category words relating to disease and death, though there is more argument about whether these are swear words exactly or just extremely uncomfortable topics. And of course, you can see clear overlaps between topics we don't like to discuss and swearing. Interestingly, whilst blasphemy gets lots of attention in countries with religiously informed legal systems, the obscenity category is the one that tends to get plenty of attention in secular legislation, and we'll come back to that point later on too. Our fifth and final category is the one where the magic quite literally happens. Cursing. For those who haven't listened to it yet, I encourage you to go try out episode 6 of On Claire, which is all about the Pendle Witch Trials, because in that episode I say quite a bit more about prayers versus spells and so forth. Because I've already gone over it in detail in that one, I'll keep it really brief in this episode. But in essence, a curse is a prayer or invocation to some higher, or one might say to some lower power, to bring about an evil upon the hearer. So a classic example would be, God damn you, you know, literally asking for God to send someone to hell. Overall then, across the five categories, swearing is linked with loss of self-control, disrespect, baseness, malice, immorality, sex, disease, and death, and that's just what we've looked at so far. I've already alluded to other connections with gender and class and power, but what happens if you are a person who occupies an inescapably privileged position and you decide to utter something offensive? The Duke of Edinburgh, husband to the Queen of England, has a reputation for swearing and saying inappropriate or even outright offensive things at public events. There are countless examples of articles published on or around Prince Philip's birthdays which list a gaffe for every year of his life. In one example, it's 1967, and His Royal Highness is asked if he would like to visit the Soviet Union. I would like to go to Russia very much although the bastards murdered half my family. Unfortunately, a great many of these quotes are based on hearsay rather than evidence. One of the key exceptions is in 2015. At the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, the then 94-year-old is captured on camera swearing impatiently at a royal photographer. The audio is rather poor quality, he did mutter it, so in case you couldn't make it out, you can see him mouth and just about hear the words, just take the fucking picture. If you get a chance, do watch the video, it's worth it if only for the subsequent close-up of Prince William's face. Anyway, it's interesting to note how the press play this story out. They paint Prince Philip as this outspoken but lovable rogue who likes to cheekily breach royal decorum, and his comments over the years have been variously described as gaffes, clangers, off-the-cuff remarks, or plain speaking. He's been described as a national treasure and has even been nicknamed Wince Philip for his tendency to make people cringe through his remarks. Many of the quotes attributed to him, however, are less lovable rogue, more racist grandpa. In 1986, during a visit to China, he warned British exchange students, if you stay here much longer, you'll all be slitty-eyed. 
I wish to God I was kidding. And remember, according to Ofcom's 2016 research project, terms like these are rated as amongst the most offensive by the British public. And yet, this China comment is frequently described in the press as an example of a gaffe. The media will have an actual cow about a working-class teenager dropping the F-bomb in private conversation as the first signs of an impending apocalyptic mass extinction event that will end the entire universe, but here it laughingly reduces an actual racist comment by a member of the royal family right down to an unintentionally embarrassing or rude remark. Hang on to Prince Philip's frankly mind-boggling social blank check, though, because we're going to see some real examples of what happens when you're not an old, white, upper-class, wealthy royal dude. Let's return to London, but now we need to skip forward three years to the 10th of March 2009. We're in Bradstock Road, where Police Constable Chalice and Police Community Support Officer McIlvaney are looking for individuals suspected of carrying cannabis. Outside a block of flats, these officers search three men, including 19-year-old Denzel Cassius Harvey. Harvey objects to being searched and exclaims, Fuck this man, I ain't been smoking nothing. PC Chalice warns him that if he continues to swear, he'll be arrested under, you've guessed it, Section 5 of the Public Order Act 1986. The officers do not find drugs in Harvey's possession, and annoyed by the whole affair, Harvey says to the officers, Told you, you won't find fuck all. When asked by PC Chalice whether he has a middle name, Harvey responds, No, I've already fucking told you so. PC Chalice then arrests Harvey under Section 5 of the Public Order Act 1986, and subsequently the officer alleges that Harvey also assaults him. Harvey is charged with two offences, assaulting an officer, and using threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour contrary to Section 5 of the 1986 Act. He is only convicted of the Section 5 offence and he is fined £50. Harvey appeals, and two years later a High Court judge overturns his conviction, The judge, Mr Justice Bean, yes, that is his real name, argues that the two police officers provide no evidence that they were caused harm or that they felt alarm or distress at Harvey's language. In fairness, someone who is distressed by words like fuck this is likely to find policing an unsuitable career choice. Instead, however, the officers argued that the arrest was justified because we believe that this was a public area in the middle of a block of flats There were people around who do not need to hear frightening and abusive words issuing from a young man. It was not only the words, but the tone in which they were said, which causes alarm. Interestingly, Mr Justice Bean astutely notes a switch in tense in this statement from the past tense throughout to the present tense right at the very end. Notably, this present tense lends itself to making a sweeping truism. So consider which caused alarm, versus which causes alarm. The past tense version refers to something that happened in the past, as you would imagine, but this present tense version could be a statement of an event that's happening live in real time, or it could be this generalised statement of a truism that occurs on all occasions for all people. Anyway, Mr Justice Bean clearly has an eye for detail, and from this he questions whether the officer's statements are findings, facts, or just general propositions. He also notes that it is not illegal in the UK to swear in public per se. 
Rather, it is illegal to cause alarm, distress or harassment using threatening, abusive or insulting language. In other words, phrases like fuck off have the potential to be abusive, especially since they can be directly targeted at someone. However, that wonderfully versatile word, fuck, the blue jeans of our vexicon, is capable of acting in a dozen different capacities in English. It can be an intensifier. This is fucking awesome. It can be an exclamation. Well, fuck. It can be all kinds of verb, including fuck that shit up, fucking about wasting time, fuck someone over, and, well, just fuck, as in sex. It can even be one of our rarest linguistic affixes in English, the infix, as in the word absolutely. We can give zero fucks about something. We can no fuck all. We can be bored, tired, or hungry as fuck. We can podcast the fuck out of swearing, and in the most perfect turn of phrase in any language anywhere, we can, in Scotland, get a fuck. I went on holiday, and you see it from a different perspective when you go on holiday with your friends for the first time. I've always seen them in action, but when you actually go on one, a boys or a girls' holiday, yeah, the holiday starts months in advance. The day, the day you go and book the holiday, that's a wee holiday in itself. Saturday morning, get a couple of cans, let's get fucking steaming, go and book that. <laughs> you don't just send a couple of representatives, about 18 of you go to the, the travel agent, <laughs> fucking book the door off the hinges. <laughs> Get us to fuck. <laughs> the deal in the window, times 18. <laughs> of the original 18 who sign up, only four will make it. <laughs> it's a bit like a boot camp. Unemployed as fuck, mates. They're the first ones to bail on you. Hey, fall at the first hurdle. Don't know if I can go, lads. Unless my PPI comes in. <laughs> I think Thomas Cook will take self-esteem. <laughs> what should be clear here, hopefully, is that most of these examples that I just ran through are not threatening or abusive, most of them. You can go back and count if you like, as I did. You may not like the word, and you may hate to hear it out on the street, but you would have a hard time arguing that uses like you won't find fuck all, or it's fucking raining, are abusive. That is personally insulting. So it's not the form that matters, it's the function. And just to round this off, Mr Justice Bean finishes by noting that the bystanders were not even asked whether they were caused alarm or distress, so how could the police really know? The officers were, of course, inferring offence. And we'll come back to this shortly. Intriguingly, the gay horse, the barking dogs, Prince Philip, and this last case all triggered quite different reactions from the public. And as with so many crimes and convictions, there are depressing themes to be found that relate to issues of race and privilege. Oxford University student Sam Brown found his case largely laughed over as a hilarious moment of banter gone wrong. Support was overwhelmingly in his favour. Yes, the public said, this was stupid, but it was late-night hijinks. The conviction being overturned was largely seen as a moment of belated common sense. To a lesser extent, Kyle Little's case also met with widespread incredulity. Man not allowed to bark at dog, the journalists cried. What freedom will we have revoked next? So, when this conviction is also quashed, there is again a general sense of wrong being righted. And we've already seen how Prince Philip's various mind-boggling racism is laughed off as an amusing, eccentric old royal being un-PC. 
He's described as being one of the most controversial royals, but also by far the funniest. Given that he isn't remotely a comedian, we can only assume here that the humour is to be found in his swearing, rudeness and offensiveness. Indeed, in a 2017 Telegraph article about Prince Philip's greatest gaffes and funniest moments, the incident where he swears at the photographer and tells him to just fucking take the picture already is listed as number 38. By contrast with these three cases, when Denzel Harvey's conviction is overturned, the reaction is very different. The vice chairman of the police federation, Simon Reid, responds, It's astounding that you can use every swear word to abuse a police officer and they have got to accept it just because it is common. This gives the green light for everyone to swear and use disorderly behaviour with police. The Scotland Yard Commissioner, Bernard Hogan Howe, expresses deep disappointment at Mr Justice Bean's ruling and adds, It is not acceptable to be sworn at for anybody, so why would it be any more acceptable for a police officer? Even if you accepted that argument, then it doesn't look too good, does it, in terms of respect? A police officer challenges a suspect about something and they stand there being abusive. I just don't understand how that works, so I am deeply disappointed by the decision, but I respect the fact that apparently it is a statement of the law. Even the then Lord Mayor, now Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, chimes in, stating that Public servants are not there to be abused. They are there to serve society and society must respect them. How can a copper cope with the job if the public are allowed to insult them with impunity? Yes, he really did use the word copper. Moving on, you can imagine what the tabloids also make of this story. Certain quarters of the press and the public hold this case up as a travesty. It will, they say, encourage others to challenge their convictions and possibly even win damages in compensation if they are found to have been wrongfully arrested. Oh no, compensation if the justice system has mistreated you. How terrible. The three cases of Sam Brown, the gay horse guy, Kyle Little, the barking guy, and Denzel Cassius Harvey, the fuck-all guy, as you might remember, all involved arrests under Section 5 of the Public Order Act, which prohibits using threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour. In the end, their cases either never go to court or their convictions are overturned on appeal. The reaction to Harvey's outcome, as we've seen, is different in the end, yes, but despite these fractures and contradictions in public attitude, there is a general sense of unease with these uses of the Public Order Act. A campaign to reform Section 5 is launched under the slogan Feel free to insult me. As it turns out, when the campaign takes off and people start sending in their experiences, lots of people have been arrested under Section 5 for anything from showing biblical passages on television to, well, barking at a pair of chocolate labs. In fact, in the two years between 2001 to 2003, a total of 51,285 people were arrested for some violation or other of Section 5. That's 25,000 people per year which is more than 2,000 people a month, or about 70 people per day. As a result of the campaign and growing public condemnation of cases like Sam Brown and Kyle Little, in 2013, at last, a little light makes its way into the ledgers of the Public Order Act 1986. With a few strokes of some important pens, the House of Lords removed the word insulting from the law so that it now prohibits, roughly, using threatening or abusive words or behaviour. The word insulting alone has been responsible for many of the most ridiculous cases 
because it is so wildly subjective, broad and unsystematically applied. After all, someone can be insulted by a terrible birthday present, but that shouldn't land them with a criminal conviction for a public order offence, unless it's a really ugly sweater. Alongside this, there was also the issue of quite who was supposedly being insulted. Was the police horse insulted? Were the dogs? Was the potential wronged party some random bystander? Maybe people inside nearby buildings could hear and be insulted. Maybe the insulted parties are purely hypothetical and never existed at all. Perhaps they were just an imagined audience that might turn up, a mythical coach of devout preschoolers being driven to church that just happened to stop by the offence, all windows open, right in time to hear some very different words about God. Whatever the case, the amended law now makes it clear that there must be a clear and specific victim or victims for a prosecution to take place. The police can no longer simply attribute feelings to someone, or imagine what Anne of Green Gables might have felt had she been real and stood there. In another episode, at another time, I will delve into the history of swearing and bad language. It's amazing to follow the twists and turns through royal palaces and dusty old courtrooms into mainstream novels and onto the glittering screens of our televisions, causing, as it goes, ever louder torrents of anxiety and amusement, censorship and insurgence. But for this episode, let's give the last word to one of language's greatest heroes, Stephen Fry, and his especially interesting take on swearing. If, if, a, if an alien was looking down on us and inspecting right. our language, they would see that the worst thing we do on this planet is we torture, we kill, we abuse, we harm people. Mm. We're, we're cruel. Mm -hmm. And those are the things of which we should be ashamed. Amongst the best things we do is we breed children, and we raise them, and we make love to each other, we adore each other, mm -hmm. we are affectionate and fond of each other. Those are the good things we do. And they would say, how odd that the language for the awful things is used casually all the time. Oh, the, the traffic was agony, it was hell, it was cruel. Oh, it was torture waiting in, the, waiting in line. Say, so he's used words like torture. That's the worst word. Right. And yet, if we use the F word, which is the word for generating our species, yes. for, for showing physical affection one to another, then we're taken off air and accused of being wicked and irresponsible and a bad influence to children. Now. We're part of this culture, so we often don't question it. But if you think of someone from outside it, it is very strange. We are very weird <laughs> indeed. We are, we are so <laughs> This episode of Enclair was researched and fact-checked by Rebecca Jagodzinski. It was scripted, narrated and produced by me, Dr. Claire Hardacre. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog. Also there, you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases, and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lanks.ac.uk forward slash onclair. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore on Claire. If you like, you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at R-J-J-A-G-O-D-Z-I-N-S-K-I. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire H. 